Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of St. Paul's Morning Report. This is a podcast supported by the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation. We're going to hear a case today. I'll ask everyone to introduce themselves, and then we'll get started right into the case. So I'm Lawrence Chow. I'm uh, Thomas Roston. Barry Casson. I'm Daniel Annis. Hi, everyone. My name's Dr. Janet Simons. I'm a internist as well as a medical biochemist. I do some CTU here at St. Paul's, so I'm, and I'm happy to present one of my CTU cases today. So this is a patient who presented to our emergency department, a 70-year-old woman uh, with previous medical history significant for moderate to severe aortic stenosis, a previous echo a couple years before she presented median gradient uh, 43 and uh, a valve area of 0.9 centimeters. But she's presenting with acute onset of what she describes in uh, triage as back pain. She has no hypertension, diabetes, or dyslipidemia. She does have some GERD and previous back surgery related to disc degeneration about 20 years prior. And in terms of heretic stenosis, uh, she hasn't had any symptoms in terms of heart failure or symptoms or orthopnea or anything like that related to her heretic stenosis. So she presents, as I said, with back pain. She, her history is that, you know, she's actually quite an active uh, 70-year-old woman. She was playing golf with some friends. She went to swing up high, and uh, she actually... Re- says that she felt a pop. Right after that event, she had quite a bit of pain on her her right flank and back. She said she actually vomited twice because of the pain. That was about two days before she presented. So she presented because after this event, she was still having pain, uh, was quite uncomfortable, but she hadn't had any more nausea or vomiting since the initial event. And she's otherwise been able to eat and drink normally. She hasn't had any chest pain. She has had some shortness of breath at rest, which is new for her, and that shortness of breath is worse with exertion. On further questioning and review of symptoms, uh, the only other sort of uh, pertinent positive is that she has had some new uh, diaphoresis or night sweats uh, for about two weeks. In triage, she looks fairly well, although uncomfortable. Her temperature at triage was 36.7, heart rate 90, and regular. Blood pressure was 152 over 65, and her oxygen saturations are 92% on room air. So I guess maybe I'll stop there. Does anyone have initial impressions, or do you want me to keep going? I guess I was going to say that, you know, a lot of back pain comes into eMERGE, and we don't ever get to see them from an internal medicine standpoint. So the large majority of back pain is MSK-related, and they get treated and discharged home. And so the people that we see with back pain tend to have a bit of a skewed set of diagnoses. Whenever I see a case like this, from my point of view as a specialist, I'm actually not as interested on the specific history of how the back pain came about. I mean, like the popping sensation and playing golf, a lot of that ends up being very irrelevant and actually tends to lead us down the wrong track. If they've been referred to us as an internist, I kind of put on a different cap looking at different diagnoses and especially anything that has red flag features. And so the red flags that I wouldn't want to miss would be an infection like an epidural abscess, a malignancy, a new pathologic fracture, or a AAA, or at least some of the things that are running through my head right now. Specifically, you know, I hear this patient has some 
constitutional symptoms, has some valvular disease, has some cardiac symptoms. My first thought is subacute endocarditis with back pain because it's a syndrome that I've seen missed before. And so that's where I'm thinking towards. But again, keeping in mind the bigger differential and, and then keeping in mind that the di- my differential is going to be very different than the eMERGE physician's differential um, when they see the patient. So I, I think that's really a good way of putting it. I, I like um, how Lawrence has, has characterized the presentation. I guess the issue is that back pain, we almost say back pain, but and we all think it's lumbar. So I, I first would want to know what part of the back, because I think that's important. You know, a high thoracic pain versus a lumbar pain. Two is where her surgery was previously. And three, unlike Lawrence's, pre- uh, I do like to hear the story because I think there's sometimes within the story, we can actually try to understand some of the mechanisms uh, that go to produce the back pain. So this swinging motion, whatever it is, if she was golfing, I, maybe swinging is just moving her arms. I suppose the other thing you haven't told us is, is her bowel or bladder affected or legs affected? and um, what she'd been trying to do to correct to help herself. You know, Barry, there was this, there was this pretty famous case at St. Paul's um, a number of years ago where a gentleman with a whole bunch of risk factors for endocarditis came in with neck pain, but the history was that he was listening to rock and roll music in his car and was headbanging, meaning he was swinging his head up and down to the beat of the music, and that was the story of why he had neck pain and that was propagated through every iteration of the story. And everybody, or at least the attending, was so convinced that you got to listen to the story that this is clearly a guy who's had some sort of traumatic soft tissue injury to his neck. And nobody expanded the differential because of, of the story. So I, I'm always more worried with these presentations because of the patients that we see. What are the underlying risk factors for, you know, presentations of of other illnesses that that we should be thinking of, other than focusing too much on on the story, because we often we often get um, misled by these funny presentations that, in our mind, I guess we just like telling the story, so it ends up propagating over and over again. You know, I think the way that uh, you think about things, Lawrence, is maybe a little bit different than the way I think about things. But I guess when I come with a cardiology lens to a case, which is sort of the way I think about things nowadays. You know, I I always think about the things that are going to kill the patient in the next hour, and I then think about all of the other possible rare weird things that potentially I can miss. And I know usually I have a few days to make that diagnosis. So to me, there's a few things that I didn't hear about the patient that I think are very important in, from like a life-threatening cardiac diagnosis. So I think patients who have aortic stenosis, she is in her 70s, so it's unlikely to be bicuspid aortic valve, but Bicuspid aortic valve can present quite late in life. It also is associated with an ascending aortopathy, and she's got back pain. So I'd like to know what her previous aortic diameter was, because I think one life-threatening thing we can miss in this situation is an acute aortic dissection. And it also has that exertional component to it where swinging a golf club is kind of like lifting a weight, and that often is cause for an acute aortic rupture, especially ascending aortic. So I think infective endocarditis and all of these things are nice diagnoses to make and we can give antibiotics early and all of those things, but they're usually not questions you can answer immediately in the moment. But in the moment, you definitely can answer with some very easy physical exam maneuvers. Make sure this is not ACS. Make sure it's not an ascending aortic dissection. Um, you know, make sure it's not a huge PE. 
because those are things that are going to kill her. It doesn't fit the story perfectly, but there are things that if you miss in the first 30 minutes, then it's going to be game over. Are you suggesting, Thomas, that we should all get an echo before we go on the golf course? <laughs> no, but I think, I think, for example, when people see severe aortic stenosis on an echocardiogram, I'm not sure that people think, why does that person have severe aortic stenosis and what else could be going on? So to me, like aortic, sometimes a huge vegetation can lead to some stenosis and that is, you know, aortic stenosis related to an infection. But to me, like aortic stenosis is many different possibilities, rheumatic disease, bicuspid aortic valve issues. So I, I really want to know more about that because that seems like the primary thing that she, she's an otherwise medically pretty well lady. The one major life-threatening diagnosis she actually has is severe aortic stenosis. You raise a good point, Thomas. I think we do make a lot of assumptions in medicine. I like what, yeah, I, I agree with you, Thomas. I agree with those ordering it that way. I think that you're correct that taking a history of back pain can sometimes be misleading, but it's kind of all you have with back pain because you can't MRI every back and doing an MRI does not always help. So I think that it is worthwhile to characterize the, the symptoms by history, which is free uh, and, and relatively easy to do, to, to get a sense of like precisely what kind of pain is it. Like we got some interesting history and Dr. Kasson's fond of telling you that the patient always tells you what they have, like the history is everything. And I agree with that. So I just wonder, like, what is the type of pain that she's having? Is it a neuropathic type of pain? Did she yank her long thoracic nerve and she's getting a ridiculous or, or a ridiculopathy? Is she getting ridiculous pain down the back? Um, or is it more muscular? Or is it more of the tearing, uh, shooting to the back dissection pain? You know, those things can be helpful. But physical exam for the back I agree, is not only challenging, but is re can be very, very hard to nail down more than nonspecific back pain. So I think I need more history and I need more physical exam before I start to begin, even begin to narrow, keeping in the back of my head everything that Thomas said about, you know, things that will kill you first. I totally agree with that. So I would carry on. And I think, Danny, that point is excellent because one, the way I think about the physical exam in these settings is that it's very important to have like a uh, rational physical exam that's actually trying to answer a question. I think very rarely does a general screening physical exam yield anything truly useful. I mean, I think it's important to do always in clinical medicine, but it's really the physical exam that helps you answer a question about something life-threatening. And to me, it's really simple to do a quick neurological exam, look for pulse deficits, do bilateral blood pressures. And to me, like if you have a, if you have a chest pain or back pain consult, no matter what the circumstance, to me, everybody should have a bilateral blood pressure because it, it's a checkpoint in your mind to make sure you don't miss something that is potentially life-threatening. Totally agree. Okay, so I'll keep going. And because I, I'm hearing that you know, we really want to focus on the exam, I will just put the disclaimer in that I did not personally do the initial exam, so I don't want to speak to exactly, but I'm going off of the notes. And the first, um, besides the emergency physician, the first call the emergency physician made was to the cardiologist. So this is going from their examination. So when cardiology saw her, they um, were asking more specific questions about the pain. And they actually considered the pain to really be more chest kind of or high back flank and chest were sort of the areas documented. And they also characterized the pain as pleuritic in their note. Also of significance, a couple hours after triage, when cardiology is seeing her, her heart rate's 105. Her blood pressure is now 110 over 80. She has an 
oxygen saturations of now about 85 to 87% on room air, and he got put on a little bit of oxygen. There's no documentation of any bowel, bladder, or neurological dysfunction, or any uh, radiculopathy, shooting pain, or any other neurological findings. The troponin, 1,500, which prompted the initial cardiology referral, I imagine. BNP is 17,000. And just for the audience, can we get a reference range? Sure, for the of course. High so here at at St. Paul's, we have a high sensitivity high sensitivity troponin T. So uh, values under fourteen nanograms per liter are considered uh, normal or below the ninety ninth percentile. So the one thousand five hundred is obviously significantly elevated. We also have an NT pro BNP assay. So the cutoff there where heart failure is likely is around five hundred, so fifteen thousand, obviously elevated, but perhaps. It's not unexpected given uh, the aortic stenosis. Her creatinine is elevated at 224 millimoles per liter uh, on a baseline of about 90 millimoles per liter. So she's in a bit of AKI perhaps. So the cardiologists are concerned about the things that Thomas was reasonably concerned about. And so they do a CTPE as the first examination. So the impression is mild burden of PE within the right upper lobe. They do mention some straightening of the interventricular septum, suggesting some RV strain, but the PE burden is felt not to be significant enough to be causing that. There is some severe background three-vessel disease, and they also note a subacute appearing left posterior 10th rib fracture, which is interesting, but not on the side where she's having her pain. So that was the summary of the CTPE. Based on that and their assessment of her symptoms, their impression was PE plus or minus maybe some MSK low back pain because there is some tenderness to palpation in the area where she had a previous spinal fusion, which is L4-L5. They attribute the AKI perhaps to the fact that she has been self-medicating over the last few days with some NSAIDs as well as some um, codeine-containing uh, medications. Can I ask you a quick question? Yes. So... Um, I, I don't think that I was really, I don't feel like I was in that ballpark. Like, I'm not sure that I heard a story that would have instantly made me jump to CTPE as, as opposed to a CTA aorta. Maybe, maybe I missed something that you guys didn't. Would you guys have done the CTPE in that context? I, I think, Dan, anytime someone says pleuritic chest pain and you have a unexplained elevated troponin, most people are going to want to rule out a PE before they look further. As for a dissection, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Thomas, but I think a CTP probably is sensitive enough to at least pick up a large dissection, but you may miss a smaller one. But in this in this case, this person has a new rise in creatinine. And if, if I'm even considering dissection, then what I need to see is the aorta at least as far as the renals, right? So I think CTP, like it, it makes sense. Like I understand why the study is done, but I'm not sure that would have been my first study. Would it have been your guys' first study? I think I agree with you, Danny. So uh, I, I think a CTPE is definitely not sensitive enough to rule out a dissection. It's a different phase study. So you're really ending up doing, um, a, a, you know, they talk about the triple rule out test where you can rule out coronary disease, a dissection and a PE all at once. But at our institution, that doesn't really exist and it's difficult to time. So I think from my perspective, this person probably benefits from some imaging of the chest early on. And the reason I say that is because in these situations, you're often stuck. Do I give heparin or do I not give heparin? And if you give heparin to someone with a dissection, then you probably will kill them. So to me, if you have a PE and you treat them for acute coronary syndrome, 
you will be treating a PE because part of the treatment for acute coronary syndrome is anticoagulation. So you at least give them the treatment up front that they would most likely benefit from. So in these situations, I actually am more likely to order an aortic dissection protocol because it can often tell me more about the coronary arteries and it can rule a dissection. So in that case, I feel I can safely give heparin and I can delay the PE study to being, for example, a VQ scan, you know, the next day to preserve their kidneys. But I think if you find that they have PE, you haven't really ruled out acute coronary syndrome, especially with the small burn of PE, and you haven't really ruled out a dissection. So you're still probably stuck in the situation where you may be reluctant to give them heparin or low molecular weight heparin with the information that you have. So I'm not sure how much you've actually gained by doing that. Okay, that's very helpful. I, I think that's kind of where my mind was at in terms of how I would order my studies. And I, I would agree. I, I think even given the abnormalities of the, um, the BNP being elevated, I'm not sure how any, even if I knew that before I saw her, I'm not sure how that would answer the question to me of what's wrong with her. So we now have just further information that would maybe help us understand her physiology, but I'm not sure that we're any closer. And I think the last, uh, I think, useful point to make about someone like her is that we can't forget about what the primary problem she had from the very beginning was that she has severe aortic stenosis. And the bottom line is this could be an atypical presentation of severe aortic stenosis where her troponin has gone up because she's gone into heart failure, her BNP is high because she's in heart failure, and it's just all from severe aortic stenosis. So I think going back and looking for a PE in somebody we already know has a very severe primary cardiac pathology just seems a bit, you know, it, it doesn't seem like we're barking up the right tree, but, you know, we found something that's potentially clinically relevant, but we probably shouldn't stop there because as the CT report says, it doesn't fully account for her septal flattening. And the other thing that the CT report says is that it says that she has three-vessel coronary calcification, but that's very different than having three-vessel coronary disease that's obstructive. And I think sometimes we don't realize that that is a very important difference. A lot of people over the age of 70 will have three-vessel coronary calcification, but no obstructive disease. Okay, those are all really good thoughts. The cardiology team who saw her wasn't as, as concerned about the possibility of dissection and also didn't really seem to think that the aortic stenosis was the primary active problem. She was treated for the PE with anticoagulation and referred on to CTU for admission and evaluation. Yikes. 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 <laughs> Why do you say yikes, Dan? Um... It's so easy to second guess when you're like sitting on the other side of a case that I know is only just beginning. But I, I still think like the scary stuff is still uninvestigated. So kind of the same thing that, that I said before. So I'm uncomfortable with the anticoagulation before I know the precise nature of this person's back and chest pain and high creatinine and all that. And I'm just not sure I've we yeah, I'm uncomfortable with the answer so far. So I'm uncomfortable with the treatment. So, yikes. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you, Dan. I, I think this was a person who presented with initial symptom of chest back pain. And because of a couple of key phrases, ended up getting a, 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 a high troponin, um, ended up getting a CTPE, and they found a small burden of PE. And people are attributing this high troponin, her desaturation, her back pain, all to this PE. But a lot of people we find incidental PEs in and who are completely asymptomatic. And so before I commit to that diagnosis, 
I think we're all kind of on the same page that that we haven't fully answered what her actual problem is right now. She seems too sick for somebody with just a small PE. Okay. The other thing that sort of struck me about this case as I was reviewing it is that the presenting complaint seems to have sort of get mutated as she goes through different teams. So in the emergency room, she's presenting with back pain. Cardiology sees the problem as pleuritic chest pain and investigates that. And then when she comes to CTU, the examination really is focusing more on her abdomen than anything else and really her right flank, which is on palpation quite tender and there's some guarding. And so that's really um, the main concern from the CTU team that sees her is actually abdominal and flank pain. They also note on the CTU admission that there's some constipation potentially because of the codeine containing medications that she'd seen. And they also note the the night sweats um, for previous two weeks as being a concern. So uh, when I first met this woman on the CTU ward, I shared the concern of my colleague who had admitted her in terms of her abdominal symptoms, a lot of guarding on the right side, and just seeming quite uncomfortable. So I did a CT abdo pelvis, which is now, this is now about a day after the initial CTPE. So the CT abdo pelvis shows a new subcapsular fluid collection involving the right lobe of the liver, which has developed in the last 24 hours. No active contrast blush is identified, but this collection has a maximum depth depth of 4.4 centimeters and extends over approximately 13 by 20 centimeters. No blood product layering, but contents are complex, attenuating between 20 and 30 Hounsfield units, and the impression is suspect sizable subcapsular hepatic hematoma secondary to anticoagulation. No active contrast, extravasation, or contrast pooling is identified. And they also note that the right upper lobe, P, upper lobe PE is not identified on this particular study. So what do we think? I love that you you pointed out one of the important things that we've actually talked about in a previous podcast, which is like, what was the presenting complaint? Like, what did the patient tell you? What, did, what were their words for it? Because Thomas, you presented a case a little while ago. I, I don't know if uh, we've up, we've actually uploaded that one, but you presented a case of someone who is having difficulty. Um, I think you you phrased it as difficulty getting their breath out, or difficulty getting their breath in. Um, not not as shortness of breath, which is maybe our reinterpretation of a presenting symptom. And it ended up being important to the answer of that case. And I think similarly here, like it's important to listen to the way that the person describes their symptom in the first place, because if you start to reinterpret it and and kind of reflect back to them the way you want them to tell you their own case, you end up kind of with a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy of um, you tell them that their symptom is chest pain, so their symptom's chest pain, so you investigate chest pain, and you forget that this person presented with chest, back, and flank pain. And I'm not sure that flank pain is well explained by a right upper lobe subacute or, or right upper lobe, mild burden, pulmonary embolism. So I, I just, I really like that you pointed that out. That's important, I think. So I think the other thing that, that um, strikes me is that it was convenient at the beginning to consider certain aspects of this case because of the history, and we went along that line, someone got a different history, and we found some pathology. And now I'm certain um, that the right upper quadrant pain in your examination, the one you requested, if you looked at the uh, request, would have heparin as part of the therapy. So it's now convenient to say, well, she's got a subcapsular 
collection of fluid and she's on heparin, therefore it must be a subcapsular hematoma. I guess what I would say is that I'd go back before I made any assumptions and say, has this changed for you since you've been in? Is this what you had? If it's changed, how has it changed? Before I would jump to the fact, because it, these are diagnoses of convenience, because we, we put certain players in, in play and then say, now what do you think? I, I think the only, the only pearl that I feel like comes from this is that uh, the way I see bleeding on anticoagulation is that it's not normal to bleed on anticoagulation. So almost always, in my experience, there is something else that causes someone to bleed. Either they got a puncture in an artery beforehand, they got a biopsy, they have a cancer in their abdomen. But if you look at the trials where they've anticoagulated people and they found that they bleed, they often go on to find another pathology. And there's actually the concept sometimes that, for example, anticoagulating AFib and giving someone a bleed can actually be protective because what you learn is that you learn about subacute bleeding more quickly, which could mean like an early GI cancer. So it's somewhat paradoxical, but there is some evidence in the literature to suggest that that bleeding challenge is actually a valuable diagnostic tool. So I actually view the, if this is a subcapsular hematoma, I want to know why she had a bleed to begin with. And maybe this is all just exacerbated what is previously existing. And maybe that pop that she felt when she was golfing is actually the initiation of the bleed and that this is just further extravasation that we see on heparin. So I, I actually see the use, the use of heparin and the bleed from heparin as a diagnostic clue more than anything else. So considering this, we think that this is a hematoma, uh, would you, I just want to get your guys' opinions if you would stop the heparin at this point. Absolutely. I don't think we had a very strong indication to have her on heparin to begin with, and, and now we have a complication from it. Absolutely, I would stop I stopped it. <laughs> Yay me. Okay. Uh, so we stopped the heparin and I did go back and, you know, talk with her again. Has her pain changed over the last 24 to 48 hours? Because that's the time that we think this would have expanded. Um, it's pretty much the same. She is also, however, getting a bit delirious at this point. And we think that that's because she hasn't moved her bowels in about four days now. So uh, we start uh, doing our bowel protocol in CTU. We actually end up getting our GI colleagues involved because we're having a really hard time getting her to move her bowels. And over the next day or two, she's just not getting better. She's just still very obstipated. She hasn't had, she has a little bit of effect with bowel protocol, but not really moving her bowels and still being delirious. So to me, a 73-year-old lady who is otherwise healthy, aside from having a bit of aortic stenosis, getting delirious from not having a bowel movement for four days seems very far-fetched. The normal person, that should not happen. You know, you see that maybe in people with early dementia, but otherwise, you know, there's something really terrible going on right now, and we're just not, we're, we're missing it, and we need to do something else to figure out what it is. So that's exactly the feeling that I had. Um, I, you know, when I when I, I was seeing her on the weekend, it was maybe the first time that I had in, in a day or two, like really talked with her again about like, how is your symptoms changing? And uh, I had the exact same thought. Something is not right. I'm not doing the right thing by this patient. Um, so I decided to image her again because that's all I really had. Would anyone have done anything different? Oh, I think that's totally appropriate. Like, you are using the cheap test, which is a history and physical exam to like 
to decide which other more expensive tests to do, as opposed to the reverse, where you say, consult his chest pain to do a chest thing. You, I, like, I totally agree that you've gone back to just the basics of history and physical, and you've used bowel changes in bowel habits as like a sixth or whatever um, vital sign. Like Thomas is saying, like that is super abnormal unless she's on a lot of opioids for pain management. That really shouldn't be happening for this like lady who was just out golfing a couple days ago. That's so abnormal. So I I think that's totally appropriate. I would also re-admit her. I, I would definitely include some imaging of the head if we're worried about delirium. This patient's been on recent anticoagulation and we're really not sure what's going on. I mean, we're, we're looking for something to, to point us in the right direction. Um, when I think about constipation, though, and I think about the workup or etiology constipation, I, I really don't have very very much that I can think of that is life-threatening that we're going to miss, that we're going to be able to pick up by, by working her up. Um, but uh, I, I share the sentiment that, that something is really unusual. When I have no idea what's going on, I sometimes find that I rarely regret scanning a patient from head to toe. And I know that doesn't sound like very good medical practice, but I think you get this patient who's very occasionally comes through, who's sick, you don't know why, you're really worried about them. Sometimes I just go head to toe and I find that I've never really regretted that. And sometimes I've found something that has really changed their chances of survival and doing well. And so that's an interesting um, comment and, you know, also, in this case, I was able, I, I had the opportunity to sort of reflect on some of my, my own biases. And one of my personal biases that's sort of something that I hold with me is trying to minimize unnecessary intervention or, 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 or um, investigation. Choosing wisely. And so that's, you know, can be wise, but you also have to choose wisely when you're going to choose wisely. So I, I initially was going to just do the plain fill abdo x-ray, be like a good little girl. And I spoke with one of my colleagues and I sort of like, can I just run this by you because something is wrong? And the very excellent advice I got was, you know, dispense with the pretext of the abdominal x-ray, you're gonna CT her belly anyway. So I repeated CT chest, abdo, and pelvis just for the heck of it. You, you, you made a point, uh, excellent point about CT head. I, I skipped over the part where she was delirious overnight and at least once she got a CT head during that um, from the overnight residence. So she had had a CT head, which was normal. The relevant finding on the CT chest abdo pelvis, and I will just read it again. There is an expanding right subcapsular fluid collection with a density of approximately 10 to 15 Hounsfield units, identical to the gallbladder contents. The subcapsular fluid collection is larger than on the previous, previous examination, but of mild to moderate amount. Maximum orthogonal dimensions are 14 by 13 centimeters. The gallbladder wall is thickened and there is extensive pericolar fat strip pericholecystic fat stranding. Gallstones are noticed posteriorly where there is an apparent dehiscence in the wall of the gallbladder. The gallstones have actually extended beyond the normal expected margins of a gallbladder wall. The fluid in the gallbladder appears to have very thin area of continuity with a subcapsular hepatic fluid, which is therefore a biloma. So now she needs urgent surgery and she has severe aortic stenosis. Yes. This is when I called surgery and then I also called my ICU colleagues. I do find it a bit unusual that we have an interval CT scan, which didn't really mention anything about early cholecystitis, thickening, especially if we're talking about a collection now that would suggest it's a ruptured gallbladder, that that there was no early signal. Um, and so although we sort of have more of an answer now, 
I don't know if I'm really satisfied that 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 the string of events that's happened so far is coming together. It's just getting more complicated. I think though what it tells us, which is very helpful, is that she is a surgical abdomen and requires laparotomy or a laparoscopy. So I think no matter what it is, even if we're slightly wrong, I think this pushes us down the road where it's like general surgery needs to give us an opinion and probably needs to do a laparotomy. And we may find something different, but at least it gives us something to do that I think is not just sitting on the ward watching. Yes. Well, at least I had something to do now. And that made me feel better, made me feel bad that this had presumably been sitting on my CTU floor for 48 to 72 hours without being identified, um, made me reflect on how we, how we interpret and how we read radiology reports as being absolute truth and reinforce sort of the, I think something that I had known for a while, but that it's sometimes easy to forget the value of walking down to radiology and discussing uh, with our radiology colleagues uh, when we when we don't think that the their interpretation fits our clinical impression, I can definitely I can definitely uh, ag- agree with that. That like going down and talking to radiology is extremely valuable. Um, and I really, although many staff have have always encouraged that, it was really Dr. Casson who um, really made an emphasis that we do that for many of our patients that we were seeing in clinic together. And I I have to admit that early on when I was chiefing with you, some of those patients that we would go down and review with radiology, I was like, what are they going to tell us? Like, everything's in this report. Like, this is this is extensive. Like, we, I, th- I feel like we know enough. And we would still go down and do it. And nine times out of 10, there was something helpful there. I don't think it's a waste of time. I feel like there's always something that you learn. It, it can be time consuming. It can feel like you're uh, you're too busy to do that. But I think that you find out a lot of useful information. Like on that first scan, I, I think that you had told us the CT of the abdomen initially, they commented on the Hounsfield units of the hematoma. Was that is that so? Yeah, that was one of the things I noticed when I was coming back to reviewing these CTs is that on the initial one, the comment is that the fluid attenuates between 20 and 30 Hounsfield units. And then on the subsequent one, it says 10 to 15. Um, so I don't know enough about radiology to know how you make that measurement, but it may be somewhat subjective, I guess. And during for that first CT, did they did they offer um, interpretation of the Hounsfield units? Were they saying like like why did they even mention that? Like they really don't. I don't often find that they mention the specific yeah Hounsfield yeah. units. So there must have been something for them that they were like, this is a bit. It's a bit of a weird collection. So I'll mention the Hounsfield units because that's important here. But me as a non-radiologist, I would skip over that part. I'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, Hounsfield units. Like, what, what do you think the fluid is? And, and with, the, with, the, with the lens of knowing what the answer is, coming back and reading the CT scan was interesting because if you, re- if you, if you listen to the sentence, no blood product layering, comma, but... Contents are complex, attenuating between 20 and 30 Hounsfield units. I, I can read sort of uncertainty or doubt into that sentence. And so, again, coming back with the hindsight, a benefit of hindsight, maybe a careful reading of this would have triggered a more fulsome discussion with radiology. Yeah, I think the other thing, and I, just to emphasize the review of the information, is that we use these reports as if they are the answer without recognizing that if we were actually dictating the report and doing it, it would be our observation and our opinion. And if you take the same image 
and show it to another radiologist, they may actually have a different opinion. And I found that over and over and over again. And so I find it helpful to actually go and speak to people because even if they don't change their answer, I can actually hear in their voice how confident they are in what they're saying about this report or what lack of confidence they have just to finish the report. And that's the problem when you, when you read a report is that when you're, when you're the one writing the report, you want to give a confident answer. And so you're not going to put your uncertainties in your final assessment. But when you talk to someone in person, even if they don't give you a direct answer, what you can hear in the nuance of their answer is their uncertainty. And that itself can actually be very helpful to know that, that there is uncertainty in this, in this scan. Um, and, and similarly, like Dan, that's probably the biggest thing I've learned working with Dr. Kasson and, and going down and talking to the radiologist, talking to the pathologist, talking to anybody who comes across as um, that you think that they give you absolute answers, but realizing that everything is an art of interpretation. So I guess just to put a, an end to the case, because of the aortic stenosis, general surgery was quite reluctant to do a laparotomy, but did do a percutaneous drainage. And uh, the patient went down to ICU for about 24 hours just to make me feel better, I think, um, but probably was best for the patient. And uh, I, when I checked in, um, it seemed to be doing pretty well. And what's happened subsequently? Subsequently, someone actually put him back on uh, rivaroxaban for the PE, and he has she has um, she has unfortunately represented multiple times with upper GI bleeding. So that's that's a sort of a separate discussion, and I don't know too much about exactly what happened after she went to ICU because I went off service. I just made some social visits, but uh, yeah, when I was reading through this case, I noticed that. So, so Janet, what do you think the mechanism was here? Did you think that? Do you think that she had like a a kind of brewing cholecystitis that she popped when <laughs> she went golfing? Like a balloon or... It seems like, that seems like the most attractive unifying theory that she had this brewing, as you say, um, uh, cholecystitis, and that was with the night sweats for two weeks maybe and generally feeling not great, and then this pop while golfing. I don't know if your gallbladder can actually audibly pop. That seems a bit distressing to me, but... Um, it seems like the most attractive unifying theory that that was the presentation and then the gallbladder and subsequent biloma were contributing to her functional ileus. I, I think this, the story of the pain is is a red herring, like a lot in medicine. I actually think it'd be really interesting to write a book of all the red herrings that we've come across in medicine. It would make for a really entertaining set of stories. It may, I mean, I think we're having trouble putting together how she developed the pain. It wouldn't be, she has the pain. It's So the, the I guess the other part of this dance is that how people report their own pain. I'm not sure how I would report the, the discomfort. It was so, we, we're, we listen for key phrases or key words or, you know, we listen for pleuritic pain, we listen for this, and, and attach our own scripts to this. But I think a lot of people describe what they're feeling, which may not fit into our, um, our ability to put that into a pattern. And so it's hard for us and for them. But one, one further thing, and I think that Thomas said it, and I'll certainly go along with it, because I've learned this over the course of the last year, 
maybe longer, I just haven't been listening longer, and that's Dr. Onrot's concept of if you're going to do one CT, do the whole body. And so I would have said no, that that's not appropriate. But over and over and over again, I think that uh, my observation from other people doing it and my own experience has been that, you know what, it's probably not wrong. To our original point about, you know, like if you were to go back and and revisit this case, how we could have done better, right? Um, I, I, I feel like when this patient came into eMERGE, maybe a very brief history was taken. There was some nonspecific pain. A troponin was ordered, and everyone ended up chasing the troponin. And it wasn't until the patient came to CTU that maybe the medical student who had a couple hours to do the consult probably actually did a really good job of taking a history and identified that, no, this pain is a bit more abdominal in origin, and, and there's some pleurisy associated, but it seems to be from the abdomen, which in hindsight all makes sense now. And that is sort of what led to the subsequent imaging to find out what the primary source of the problem is. And so again, as we kind of started, it really does come back to the the history and physical. And I think that's one, one of the other sort of um, threads through this whole case is sort of the over-reliance or over-interpretation of the diagnostic testing, the, the troponin, and then the initial CT showing a PE, and then the subsequent P- CT showing a hematoma. You know, each time we just say, oh, troponin's high, must be something cardiac. Oh, there's a PE, that must be the cause. You know, so that was like another theme that came up definitely during this case. I think that, like, that's a, a good point because I think that is that is a little bit of the counter argument to the to the argument that in certain cases scan broadly um, because you're not sure what what it is precisely that you're looking for. I think chase you you do have to be a bit directive in terms of where you look, right? Like in this case, they perhaps maybe they didn't scan broadly enough, but they certainly found something that stopped them from looking elsewhere at least for a couple of days until uh, you took over. So. Yes, I agree. Like, I think there is very little harm in CT scanning someone in their 70s. I, I, I'm not sure that there's many situations where I've done these, scan the whole body and see what comes back. I know that's not precisely what, what you're saying, Thomas, but I think this, this, we ended up following a finding we weren't expecting. And I think that's, that's maybe like the key is that if you're gonna, if you're gonna scan broadly or test broadly, you need to know that you're casting a wide net and not that and and know that not everything you catch is going to be relevant. So if you are cognizant that you're kind of going fishing, don't take every piece of sea trash you find as a fish. The other thing is is that I think the important aspect that maybe you demonstrated it better than we could by our questions or our answers is that you were uncomfortable that this explained things and so you reflected and then re-reflected in trying to sort out and not say that she's 73 and therefore she's delirious and don't you know what most 73-year-olds when they're sick get delirious and yes, she has a subcapsular hematoma, yes, we know, and, and not be satisfied that you had a, a quick and dirty explanation but continue to pursue something that didn't sit right with you. So I think it's to your credit that that didn't sit right with you. And I think that's, that's a really good lesson here. Yeah, I, I think the pearl I'm going to take away is I'll always do the best history and physical that I can possibly do in the moment. And if I don't know what's going on after that, then I'll scan the whole body. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it, it may not be the worst approach. 